0: Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Dr. Arielle Schwartz. She is a clinical psychologist, an EMDR, a consultant. She's a certified yoga instructor. Instructor. She's written multiple books, including this one, which I've read, which is the Complex PTSD Workbook. Her own approach to therapy is called Resilience Informed Therapy. Ariel, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so I like to start things right at the start, and you know something of your backstory and how you ultimately got interested in in psychology and in, embarked on on the career that you now have.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, I think so many of us enter into the field of psychology, um, in part because of our own history and our own wounding. And that was certainly the case for me. And I was looking for a way to feel more at home in myself and more grounded. Or if we want to look at the converse, I was looking to feel less anxious and, um, and disconnected. And so in part, uh, the those symptoms, if we think of it that way, of anxiety and and disconnection from myself, were arising as a result of a lot of discord in my own family home growing up. And I'm a very kinesthetic person. It's a lot of how I process the the world is through the felt experience of myself, and and so a lot of the way that those early traumas impacted me were feeling kind of trapped in certain ways in my own embodiment, like a catch in the throat or Mm -hmm. a feeling of um, pressure in my chest or a feeling of kind of shrinking inside. If I were to give some words to these somatic experiences, um, I also would often get sick as a child. I had chronic bronchitis. I had a lot of chronic throat infections and it it took me a while to really see those as manifestations of trauma. And I think so often when we hear the word trauma, we think like some big, significant event, right? But these were more the accumulation of more subtle things. And they sound kind of big, but I was relatively supported. My parents got divorced. There was a lot of discord. It was a high conflict divorce. There was That happened by the time I was four. I went between two very different households. There was a fire in my mother's house when I was seven. Um, we had to live in a hotel for three months. You know, things that in the large span of things, I had a relatively safe and cared for life. But all of these events, especially for someone who's very sensitive, accumulated in me and lead me, led me to feel quite overwhelmed. And as that accumulated experience developed in me, by the time I was in my teens and early 20s, I felt really ashamed and anxious and like I didn't belong in the world. Um, I felt very different. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I would say that like what brought me back home to myself were experiences like going to a yoga class where I would breathe and I would slow down and I could feel my emotions. And even though that was tender and painful, it also felt more connected. Uh, likewise, going to therapy, um, moving my body in different ways, going to embodiment workshops or being out in nature, all of those things were kind of like a, like one of those dot to dots where I started to feel like, oh, this is constructing a picture of how I find myself again and again.
0: And and when did you first start to sort of make the link between your present experience and your early situation growing up? Did that happen early or did that take some time?
1: To some degree, I, I had a lot of support in that, in part because my mom is a, also a clinical psychologist, and. Okay. And my stepfather is a social worker, and so I had um, a household where we actually were able to talk about some of these things, even though it, even though there were those resources, it wasn't quite enough to um, uh, to take away the impact of right. the, the other challenges. And then it was, again, later when um, I was, you know, times when I was on a massage table, times when I was in a yoga class where I could start to feel those connections for myself between those catches in my body and how they were connected to ways that I felt like that same way as a little girl. So all of those accumulated you know, kind of picture of, huh, I really want to understand this body-mind connection in relationship to healing trauma or complex PTSD, that accumulation of these repeated chronic uh, experiences, it it took me into the study of this field of somatic psychology, which is centralizing the body in service of, of healing.
0: Right. And you mentioned a term there, complex PTSD. I think most people have probably heard of PTSD, but they may not have heard of complex PTSD, is it worth allowing?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. When we think of PTSD, we're looking for that big, significant kind of, we call it a capital T trauma, right? Like the car accident or the combat experience in war, um, the explosion, the act of terrorism. And indeed, those are all significant traumatic events. When we look at complex PTSD, we're looking more at the repeated chronic Ongoing recurrent experiences that accumulate in us. And they because they often start when we're very young, they provide a certain schematic understanding of ourselves. They provide a, a very basic sense of identity that that builds itself around the traumatic wound. And the ongoing experience of I don't feel like I belong here, or I don't feel understood, or the world feels scary and unsafe. Um, maybe I don't deserve to exist. Right? These really deep um, core beliefs that inform our sense of ourselves. And what's so challenging about uh, about this is that very often. We don't identify this as a form of PTSD. We just think this is who I am. And so when we look through the lens of complex PTSD, we recognize that it's the accumulation sometimes of subtle and sometimes of not very subtle life experiences, like maybe it's the ongoing abuse. But even in a household where perhaps you're growing up with a parent who's an alcoholic or where there's um, a, a lot of conflict and discord in your household, there's a certain way in which if that's the only world that a child knows, they have to in some way make that world okay enough or normal enough. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the fish swimming in the water. It doesn't know it's wet.
0: Mm. And And what it sounds to me like you had a, one of the advantages of your background was that When you started to get into the body and, and get this interest in somatic, uh, the the somatic experience, you you were already kind of looking for the links and uh, feeling this, I've got this trap in my body. Could that have come from this? Is that right?
1: That's right. And I think that, that, that very often when we do follow the body and we go in Mm. with inquiry and we go in with curiosity we, the body actually will, in a sense, hold the memory of what we experienced. And it's not always a verbal memory and it's not always a narrative, but sometimes it does link up. So, you know, quite directly, for example, I had an experience Probably, you know, for at least 12 years of my life, sitting in one seat at the dinner table in a household where I felt very unseen, unwelcome, unheard, afraid. And I would chronically lose my voice. I would go to this place where I felt like I couldn't even think, I had no words. And because that happened every single week for 12 years, it shaped my sense of myself. Even though I had another household where I felt welcome and, and at home, the accumulated experience of of this type of event had a very significant uh, impact on on my own identity.
0: Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And what I'm I'm somewhat contrasting it to my own experience in my early steps of therapy where I, I'd kind of had the the belief that, oh, if it's in the past, it's not affecting. It. If it's in the past, it's in the past. And and it I I think what's interesting for for me is you you were able to jump straight to, okay, let's try and link these things up. Um and I'm I'm wondering, do you face clients now who are also coming in with that belief and are sort of skeptical about, well, hang on, can I really hold on to memories in my body? And uh does this event that happened 20 years ago really impact me now? Do you find that? And if so, how do you sort of help people to start opening up and getting curious about the potential connection?
1: Yes. I I think that when someone is coming in for therapy, there's a reason there's some area of distress we don't come in because we're feeling great and everything's fine we we come into therapy because there's something that doesn't feel right in ourselves or in our relationships and we must start with what feels relevant with with that reason for seeking support and help and um and then If we can attend to where is that distress and just hold it with compassion and curiosity, something will eventually emerge. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't times in which we, you know, I think what you describe is quite common where we're interfacing with someone that says the past is in the past. Why should I pay attention to that now? I need to just be looking ahead and living my life. And. To some degree, we do want to free ourselves to look ahead and live our lives, but the body doesn't live in a timeline. Our, our soma doesn't always match a clock. Our psyche doesn't necessarily match a clock. And so if you are experiencing thoughts, memories, emotions that are weighing you down, that's accumulated from somewhere. And we, you know, it, it doesn't just arrive out of, out of nowhere. And so we want to understand how did you develop those kinds of thoughts? Even the way you carry yourself in the world, we can think of our posture, for example, as a form of memory in the Mm. sense that, you know, here, think about a dog that's been hit too many times, right? The dog will curl its tail under and, you know, And either protect itself in that way, or it will bear its teeth and protect itself this way. And as humans, we too are shaped by our experiences. And if we have in some way bared the burden of unworthiness and shame, our bodies will in some way either curl in to match that felt experience, or conversely, will go through the world braced. Right, we might not bear our fangs, but we're ready to fight. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I had some powerful experiences I can remember when I was doing yoga and also in in, in therapy with with the warrior poses where I was lifting my you know where, where I was being invited to really lift my chest out and and allowing myself to to feel some sense of of, of pride or confidence in taking on that pose, but the, the tears would would start to roll. As I, as I felt the pain really of not having had access to that embodiment, right? What we would say, right? That, that way of being in the world. Um, and, and it was a point you made in, in this book, The Complex PTSD Handbook, which I love. I'll just, I'll just read the quote because I, I loved it. It's the integration phase of trauma involves strengthening positive feelings and behaviors so you can feel capable of creating the life you want. Allowing positive feelings to grow requires tolerating the sensations that accompany emotions, even good ones. And that was the point, such as joy, happiness, and excitement. Like that's, that's what I find interesting about this conversation about doing, doing therapy and looking at our past is it, it's counterintuitive of, on, on, on its face. But by doing this work, we give ourselves access to having greater joy and, and happiness in our lives.
1: It's, it's so true. And I think that the key part about that too is that we think that going to therapy means that the only thing I need to focus in on is what's wrong. And the reason why I call my work resilience-informed therapy is that we absolutely must broaden that lens from focusing solely on symptoms and distress into also focusing on our resources, our strengths, and our capacity for joy and excitement and empowerment and um and love
0: yeah yeah and and that's and that's where i think this this almost this fusion of the two conversations about coaching and and therapy happens because if i if i'm acting as a coach and i'm saying okay describe for me your your dream life where do you want to be in a year from me talk about all the experiences you'll be having right and and etc etc and have people paint that vision well, they're going to be limited to the extent they can allow themselves to fill out that vision by how capable they are of imagining themselves in states of, of joy and, and happiness and so on. And so we, 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 we're limited as coaches to, to some extent with, with what the client is capable of, of feeling. And sometimes it's only by going down a therapeutic path that we can open up someone to to think big about their lives in in the kind of coaching mode. Does does that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. I'm actually thinking of an individual um, that I've worked with where because the trauma was so chronic throughout his childhood, for him to imagine a future would have been futile. It would have been um, actually more painful to long for something because he had so little that was in his control growing up. And so sometimes this idea of hope feels like it's a slap in the face, right? Like, how dare you ask me to envision something or hope for something? Because when I did that as a child, I was chronically disappointed. And I will not allow myself to feel that again.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so it's only, uh, it's only by creating an environment where people feel safe to actually feel into that and de- almost de- develop that capacity to grieve that pain, the way I look at it, that we can help them c- clear it. Does, does that make sense From
1: Absolutely. And it also really touches me, that image of you in this, you know, empowerment pose, whether that's warrior two or a five-pointed star, but this experience of Uplifting through your chest and allowing your breath to move through you, and then the tears start to flow, because we feel that contrast point. And sometimes it's not until we feel what is possible Mm. that we actually grieve what we didn't have.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and I, and I think yoga is is a fabulous tool for that. I mean, there are there are others, but certainly for me, it was really engaging with the body that had me. Had me get there, right? Had me get to as a real feeling of, let's say, in this case, pride or or confidence. And I think if I'd have just talked about it or drawn a picture of of me being confident, one of those things might have worked. But my sense is that it was the embodying it that made the difference.
1: Yes, and and sometimes it's embodying that sense of confidence that touches off that emotion. Um, Sometimes it's embodying stillness that touches off that experience. I'll, I'll give a personal example. Um, I have a few of them, but what, one that really stands out was when I was 23 or so, I went and did my yoga teacher training and we it was immersive. I lived at the Kripalu Center for a month and we were just in depth study. We'd wake up every morning and do morning practice and sadhana. And it was a really stunning experience. And, um, but I remember one of the days, maybe halfway through the program, I was laying on my belly during one of the lectures and I was just kind of laying on the floor and taking notes in my notebook and my legs were stretched out behind me. And I just couldn't sit still in my body. There was something in me that was just on the run. And my legs behind me were just kick, 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 kick. And and my feet were moving behind me. And, I was quite unconscious of the fact that there were two lovely women sitting behind me (laughs) who at some point were being distracted by my moving feet. And one of them just reached forward and she placed her hands on my feet and I burst into tears. And in part because I wasn't even conscious of the fact that I was in a flight response until i was met there and she wasn't shaming me and she didn't you know she was actually very caring and once the emotion began to move through me she just kept her feet there and stayed present um and i remember that now you know as if it were yesterday and and um and i it's a, a powerful process to wake up to the state of our nervous system and to those somatic expressions of that especially when we sometimes live in the world quite unconscious to those
0: yeah yeah i think i th- that makes that makes sense and i've i've also found and i don't know what your experience is that sometimes it's it's the yoga classes that where we're being invited to take on different moves and so on that that can make the difference but for me it's sometimes if i can just find myself in an anonymous environment where i could just scream or or dance or, or twirl around or ju- or just just move my body in whatever way my intuition is calling me to move it in that moment and 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 it will release something right and i'll i'll perhaps get to some tears or, or experience joy in a way i haven't experienced before and and just allowing myself to be weird <laughs> and just like go with where, what the body wants to do i've also found to be really powerful
1: and it speaks a lot to your own willingness to go there and your comfort once you arrive to those deep emotional places. And for some of us, myself included, I really enjoy, in some ways, being able to just contact that freedom wherever I am, right? If it's a, you know, in in, um, um, you know, at a yoga festival or whether it's in the privacy of my own you know home studio, I feel relatively comfortable touching into those larger emotional states. And yet that's not true for everybody, of course. And I think that sometimes we touch into those emotions and it couples with memories of times when we were told we were too much or that somehow we felt abandoned and rejected when we had those big feelings. Um, Or when I felt a big emotion, someone else had a bigger emotion that in some way frightened me and um or usurped my process or whatever that might be so to know that you know you can build that capacity to compassionately uh be present with yourself in in those big states and that part of how we build that is by having new relational experiences either in therapy or as you say in, in a coaching environment where we actually recognize i'm not too much i'm just being human right this is yeah. This is me having my birthright of my experience, my emotions, my, my body, and that someone else is right there showing up with me, welcoming me as I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and this, my, my body, I, I did a search recently just on Google trends for embodiment and it's, it's been a steady rise since 2004. And you know, you reference, uh, CBT and you know cognitive approaches in in your um, in your work, you know from your and I've had some debates with with others about you know how much do we really need to touch into the body? You know, isn't this really about getting control of the mind and, and and managing our narrative about ourselves and our lives? And and there's a sort of skepticism about this need to go to the body. What's sort of where where do you draw a line there? Where do you think it's enough to just stay in the cognitive? Where do you have to get into the body? What's your what's your sense there?
1: For me, it's about getting to know what is the value system of someone that I'm working with. Because mm. if if I impose my own value system on someone else, I'm uh, at, at risk either of, first of all, them, you know, leaving therapy, not getting the benefit of what they could get out of the process or, or uh, in some way doing harm. And so I do think there's great value in the top-down work, in knowing your beliefs and getting to know your thoughts, in reflecting on your behaviors and, and freeing yourself up of that negative spin. And personally, if you're to ask my own value system, I absolutely love the felt experience that accompanies the somatic work in that it's one thing to... Imagine, for example, a state of compassion or the idea of compassion. It's a completely different um, ballgame to embody compassion, to have that felt sense, to experience the softening around your heart and to let go of that bracing that so many of us do around our emotions and to actually just be with that felt experience of, of freedom. Mm. And it's not for everybody and that's okay
0: right so that that that's interesting and do you do you think it's not for everybody because uh some people it's just not necessary for for their healing or do you think it's not for everybody because th- there's just some people who are just not ready to start embodying and do the do, doing the deeper work do, do you see what i mean
1: I I do. And, um, I don't totally know the answer. It's an interesting inquiry to hold with you. And, um, and I think there's a lot of different ways to live this human life and, and that, that in some ways, the range of our experiences, um, are what make this very kind of intricate tapestry of humanity um what it is
0: yeah I love the way you answered that question and I and it sort of exposed I think it exposes for me a kind of bias I think there's a there's a there's part of me I think because I've had so much value myself from doing this embodiment work and and I was so disembodied for my you know, for my childhood um I'm like oh well if you if you're not getting into embodiment it's just because you're you're too scared of getting into your body or something but of course that that's totally you know uh, shaped by my my own experiences, um, and, my, and I'm my not
1: not here to say that I don't share some of that. I really do. I really do have a um, a, a a deep feeling of the richness that the embodiment practices offer us. Um, and I, I also get the sense that you know, just like you can lead a, ho- a horse to water, and you can't make it drink, like. We can promote all the values of embodiment out there on every platform in the world, but not everyone's going to come to that river.
0: Right. And, and, and they may be making a valid assessment that it may they, maybe they can see some value in it, but actually for me right now in my life, in my context, it, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? I, I'm happy to stay <laughs> at the, at the, at the, at the yeah. cognitive level. And who's to say that that's, that's not the best, best choice?
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, so the other, the other question I, 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 I had, so I had, um, Peter Levine on the question on the, on the podcast. And one of the things that we got into it and perhaps had a slight disagreement about was like the level of wit, the level to which we, we need to spend time re-presencing our old trauma and to kind of, and, and so personally for me and taking the, the primal therapeutic approach, it is very much about re those scenes, those events, feeling all of it, getting to the tears and grieving it and, and really kind of working with it, um, if you like, in an absolute sense, right? A hundred percent of it. And, and I think Peter was more like, well, we we kind of need to do enough to, to graze that tree to sort of touch into it, to get, get enough of a sense of it that we can get some insights about how that may be shaping our, shaping our experience. But we don't need to to dwell in it um absolutely. so I wondered what what your sense is about about that and your experience. Yes.
1: Well, I'll give a little bit of context because um I think especially for listeners for whom somatic psychotherapy is relatively new, it's good to get to know the history of the field and you know a, a brief minute of sure, <laughs> good but you know, when we look at the origins of somatic psychology, it started out with Wilhelm Reich and the Reichian therapies, along with primal therapy and bioenergetics, all of those had a, a great emphasis on catharsis, right? And mm. so whether that's primal scream therapy, whether in Reichian therapy, it's, you know, deep breath work, um, hitting the pillow, moving your body in, in, in very intense ways, bioenergetics, we take ourselves into these stress postures and we let the body shake and we're in a sense inviting a, Re-experiencing or reliving yeah. of what it felt like to be that child waiting for someone to come get you, and the 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 longing and the grief of that, and that the field of somatic therapies has evolved in a sense, not maybe maybe devolved. I'm not sure which direction we want to think about it, but it's evolved into more of a containment approach, which means that there's a lot more mindfulness. It's a lot slower. It's an emphasis on reflecting upon the somatic experience mindfully, touch and go. We, we titrate the process, Peter Levine's word, right? We go towards Mm. small amounts of distress and then we, we back out of it and we allow that to integrate. And then we go back in and that the, the purpose of that was to avoid re-traumatizing. Right. And to me, the answer to your question isn't about one right or one wrong approach, but it's more about what can an individual actually handle? Or to borrow another common term in the somatic therapies, we talk about this window of capacity or window of tolerance. How much sensation, emotion, felt sense can I stay present with? And for you, clearly, you can stay present with a lot right mm-hmm. you can be with that big emotion without feeling re-traumatized by it right and for others that's not the case and to know that that titrated contained mindful option is out there can be incredibly um easing on some of that anxiety around if i open up the gates it'll be like a floodgate opening i'm going to feel right. all of it at once and I'm scared of that. And so we can say, well, what happens if we feel just 5% of that? Oh, I can do that. Right. And so it's, it's not so much about a one size fits all somatic approach, but how much can any one person, how much are they willing to feel and want to feel without it becoming too much or overwhelming?
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a great answer and and makes a lot of sense and also puts in perspective because because i think whilst you're right i i i seem to have a capacity i mean it took me a while to get there to 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 really experience these highly traumatic uh situations and re-experiencing the terror and and, and etc uh of my early trauma Um, it, it left me on my back right i mean it, it, if i did one of those sessions i i that was me for the day right and and if i was yeah. You know, and maybe several days afterwards. And it was very difficult when I was in the full throes of it to integrate that and doing anything else, basically, at work or, or what have you. And I mm-hmm. think that was, that's always one of the, uh, the perils, if you like, of taking that, the, certainly the path that I took of, and, of and going really deep.
1: The truth is, is that sometimes we end up there anyway. We think we're going in with something really subtle and all of a sudden it opens up something really profound and deep. I've certainly had that in my own life. I, I, I remember again, I was in my twenties. It was one of my first introductions into somatics and I was attending a body mind centering workshop. And it's kind of a funny story, um, in, in retrospect, but I was, a senior in college, I went to this workshop because a friend of mine invited me, thinking I might really enjoy it, which I did. It, it kind of shaped my career, and and um, and the workshop involved things like crawling on the floor and moving your body back into shapes that we might have explored when we were an infant, first learning um, how to orient to the world, rolling, um, being held by another, and being rocked by another. Um, having your head be held and just allowing your, your head to turn from side to side, just like a baby would be orienting in that orienting reflex towards, um, towards the mother, towards the breast, towards her face. So very early reflex integration in this workshop. And the funny part about this story is that I was a senior in college. I was dating a boy who was a freshman and it was a very casual thing, right? And, We go into this workshop, I go into this workshop, and I'm doing these movements and really touching into very, very early baby type uh, states in my body. And it opened something very deep up in me. It opened up my attachment system. I didn't have words for that at the time. I really had no idea what was going on, except that I came out of that workshop ready to attach. And I was just like, oh, I need commitment. I want someone who's going to show up in a consistent way. And this 18-year-old boy was like, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Not for me. And which of course makes sense. And it took me another 10 years to integrate that attachment system that got woken up in me. And to be okay with the fact that I had this deep, deep longing for... Intimacy and connection that previously I think I had compartmentalized and quite tucked away.
0: Mm, yeah, that that that's right. That's that's funny, and and yeah, I resonate with that. It's like you open up, and and who knows what's going to come out. But all of this sort of crazy compulsions and 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 sudden shifts in in personality and, and so yeah. on, I think that do. Do can occur when we do this deep work. It can be very destabilizing.
1: That's right. Well, but here's the other part of it: is that I think in some ways, therapy has gotten a little bit too, like, kind of veered a little bit too much to the cautious side of things. In the sense that we want to make everything so safe, and the truth is, is that you can make things too safe.
0: Right. Yeah. That that there has to be, yeah. Some a a friend of mine was described. it, it's almost like an entrepreneurial activity, like getting into therapy, right? Because you, you really are taking risks with your life, in a sense, because you, you don't quite know who you're going to be at the end of it. And you yeah. don't quite know how disruptive it might be. But it, uh, in terms of the broad arc, well, in my experience, everything goes up. It's just it's not a straight line. And we have to be willing to take some risks, in a sense, with our lives to, to do the work.
1: And you said something so important there. Am I willing to not know who I'm going to be on the other side of this journey, whether that's Mm. a single session or whether that's a 10 year arc of therapy. And it's, it is that that's another inherent piece to this, that not everyone comes into therapy with that willingness to enter into uncertainty. And I love. I'm going to borrow from Dan Siegel, and um, who's you know absolutely beautiful um, interpersonal neurobiologist and and therapist, and in this understanding that uncertainty is another word for freedom. It's another word for possibility, and it really requires our willingness to tolerate uncertainty to allow ourselves to change.
0: Right. And so you can, you, I suppose, as we put it in that context, you can see why the, the therapeutic community wanted to make it safer to perhaps cast its net more broadly in terms of the people who might accept it, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and, and
1: Exactly. And, and part of the problem is that in therapy, we have become so medicalized that all of a sudden we're creating these protocols and the protocols have built into them the expected outcome that we're going to somehow take a person from point A to point B and point B is going to look a certain way. And I think it's, it's unfair and it's in some ways an injustice to the creativity of a person that as therapists, our job is to also sit in uncertainty rather than sit with a protocol and have an expectation that you're supposed to feel a certain way at the end of this session or at the end of this work. For me, if that were the only um, approach to this work, I would have left it so long ago, I would have been bored, right? To Mm. me, what makes this work beautiful and stunning is that willingness to not know who someone is going to become. And in fact, also to know that I will be changed along the way as well.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That's so, I mean, I was doing some work with somebody yesterday and we're, we're in the middle of working with some, some subconscious beliefs this guy has. And, and literally halfway through, I was like, I've got exactly the same thing <laughs> and I'm going to have to go do some work on this very subject as soon as this, finish, this session finishes, which, uh, which, I was able, which I was able to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's both, both sides are always uh, being transformed by the process.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and we're, we're meant to allow ourselves to be changed um, in, by the other. Um, otherwise, if I don't let myself be changed by you, then the, the whole process kind of flattens. Even in this conversation, for example, I don't really know where this is evolving to. And I love that you don't come in with a pre-prepared, you know, expectation either. And it allows something very organic to occur.
0: Yeah, and, and and that's in and, and so we, we should almost c- consider it a, an artistic process. You know, I think that's perhaps a, a, a better way. Yeah, I think that frame to me makes much more sense than a than a medical frame where you're coming with these issues and we're going to help you know get you to this place and solve these these things. Right? There's there's something about the, well, no, this is an exploration of of who you are, of of the pain you carry. And uh, and we're going to work together and 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 just explore your your body and your beliefs and um what will emerge will emerge. I mean that could be a very difficult sell, but that's that's really I think the reality of this work.
1: Yes, it's it's also bringing to mind for me what it's like when I teach yoga because I teach yoga in a rather organic style as well. I mean I have a generally a a class plan for when I go in to teach, but the the There needs to be enough freedom within the structure so that there are opportunities to really listen for the student to go in and listen to how does their body make this shape their own? What is ready to evolve is um, a result of this kind of home base of a posture, for example. So we might take a shape in the body, but then... There's room for that to be, the, to be shaped by the person, um, to evolve. I'm not wedded to a prescriptive style of yoga in which we're perfecting a posture. In fact, quite the opposite. We use the posture simply as a secure home base for self-exploration and the evolution of what gets to arise next. And the next thing you know, we are all yogis creating a whole new repertoire of shapes. And I think that's how it's meant to be.
0: Yeah, and, and how different are those types of, of yoga classes? And I had to fight, because I, I started doing therapy and yoga at the same time. And so it, it, took, it took me a while to figure out, well, which ones are gonna support, which are which the type of classes are gonna support me and, and which are just basically just sort of gymnastics classes. Um, where exactly as you I'm trying to perfect some, some pose, uh, and it's a really important point you're making. And also, and, and I just had to find those teachers who intuitively know when it was going to be okay to like, you just mentioned, like take somebody's feet mm-hmm. and that's going to serve them. Whereas actually doing some kind of manipulation, there were several times in classes where I, I, I just completely froze up. Cause I'd allow myself to open all the way up. I was being opened up with this therapy. And then come in and put their hands on me. And I, I found it kind of terrifying. Uh, so it's um having kind of trauma-aware, um, well, any kind of embodiment I think you could apply it to yoga, to personal trainers, to 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 anybody who's working with with the body. Um, I think it's I think it's a it's a powerful moving that's happening, and it's important for us who are in this process to be able to distinguish, okay, well, is somebody gonna be able to work with me here? or not. I remember having a cranial sacral massage once and it started to bring up some tears. I started sort of crying and and letting out some kind of pro primal vocalizations. (laughs) I was like, okay, session's over. (laughs) You, You can leave now. I don't know what's going on, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. Right. And how different it would have been had that individual said, just let that happen. Trust your body, trust your process, this is good. I've got you.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the difference she 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 could have made. I mean, to, I mean to be fair to her, she was just she just didn't know how to handle it. There, there was a, there obviously nobody had let themselves go in that way on her table before. And yeah. uh, <laughs>
1: yes, yes,
0: <laughs> that's yes. how she got me. I mean, it was interesting because I was also working with a Rolfer at the same time. Uh who yeah, was that, Well, we are
1: known what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and she's
0: just great. She was just, it was basically having another form of therapy. I mean, yes. So she was um very willing to let me go wherever I needed to
1: Of course. To go. And, and of course, we've we've probably both had cranial sacral therapists who know exactly how to follow those moments in such a stunning way as well. It's not it's not so much the type of therapy as, as it is the the um capacity of the practitioner and I love the this idea that we can only take another person to the places that we've been willing to go ourselves. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, for me as a practitioner, I I feel very comfortable with catharsis or I feel very comfortable with big emotions in the room because I feel comfortable with that in myself and because I've touched those places. And um and that inadvertently, when we don't feel comfortable within ourselves, we'll shut other people down. So it always starts with know thyself.
0: Yeah, know, know thyself. Um, but, but I'm very hopeful for, I mean, we had another writer who's out of Oxford. You may have, Daniela Seif. I don't know if you know her. No, but, she, no, but she, she, she's, she writes on trauma and this idea that we should have you know, trauma-aware teachers and police Policemen and police women and, and social workers and, uh, who, who have been there to some extent themselves and know what's happening when they're engaging with another, especially when they're working with their bodies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Um, yeah, I, 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 And it does feel like it's the somatic movement is growing, and, and there is a, a growing awareness out there. Do you find that in your work that you're working with other professions, or are you not seeing that so much yet?
1: Um, I find that more and more there are people that are coming into trainings that uh, that I offer from such a wide range of professions, whether it's acupuncturists, whether it's dentists. Uh-huh. Um, right? I'm mean, you know talk about a, a great place to have a trauma aware pr- uh, professional, mm. uh, whether this is doctors. I do a whole lot of trauma training for groups of psychiatrists. I do trauma-informed work for um, psychedelic-assisted um, uh, psychotherapists. So, so those who are working in that arena, who basically are excited about the potential in psychedelics, but really need the the trauma-aware skills, and so I'll teach that for for those trainings as well. I just think that in in as many arenas as we can touch. I got to work with a, a whole school system here as well, working with oh, pretty giving teachers trauma-informed um, practices of just simply how do you attend to that if, as it, I think, inevitably will show up in your classroom. And likewise, you know, one doesn't have to be a trauma-informed yoga teacher to have trauma show up in your yoga class. And right. so to know that in some ways this is a, a life skill and it's a form of emotional intelligence to have these skills.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, my, my partner's a dentist, so, uh, that's a particular interest that, yeah, mm-hmm. th- that you're starting to work with, with, with dentists and you're right. Of course that, yes. yeah, that isn't going to be a place where it, it shows up a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. this is, uh, this is very, very hopeful that it's, yeah, it's, it's really coming through and people are, are, are getting, more aware and how, you know, how much do you think people need to do their own, this touched on a point earlier, need to do their own work versus just, just the awareness without them necessarily doing deep work themselves can be beneficial.
1: Um, I, I just truly believe that awareness only takes us half the, half the way.
0: Yeah, exactly. the, The
1: knowledge, let's just say like the knowledge of, of a set of skills is only half the equation. It's the presence that you're bringing into the room that is the the depth of what's possible. And even if you just look at it through the lens of the study of nonverbal communications, we recognize that about 60 to 70% of what we're communicating with each other lives in that nonverbal realm. And it's the facial expressions, it's the tone of your voice, not just the words you're saying, it's the quality of, again, posture or gesture or the leaning in, the leaning away, the head nod that you're doing, right? It's all of these elements that actually communicate to another person whether or not we're trustworthy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that, that brings to mind somebody we had uh, Eileen McCusick, who comes on uh, and, and she talks about electric body, electric health. To what extent have you explored, you know, us as electromagnetic beings and holding trauma as, you know, if you like, vibrational patterns in our in our fi- in our biofield? Is that something you've you've explored and looked into?
1: To some degree. I mean, I think that you're, you're using some language out there that's outside of my knowledge base, but, to, but for me as a yoga teacher, we spend a lot of time looking at the subtle body and the energetics of what it means to, um, uh, to, to breathe or to, um, kind of where energy moves and what directionalities energy is flowing through us. So in the yogic system, we call these the vayus or the winds of the body, and that we might have a whole lot of upward moving and not a whole lot of downward moving energy, which can leave us feeling kind of ungrounded um, and disconnected from the, the body or disconnected from the earth that can throw us off balance. Maybe we have a lot of outward moving energy, but not a lot of inward moving energy. And in that case, we need the inward moving energy to support our digestive system and that restful state of residing inward. So we can get stuck in those energetic domains of being stuck out. Or maybe conversely, we get stuck in, but we don't have enough of that outward flowing, excitatory, energetic state. Uh, so I think, you know, you'll hear in how I'm speaking about this, that that ultimately when we become energy aware of ourselves, then we have a new domain from which to find greater balance. I'll, I, if I may, I'll share a, a brief story. I've been working with um, a student of mine, and um, I think she'll be comfortable with me sharing this, um, who has been um, a yoga student uh, for quite a few years. And when she first came, she was in a sense learning how relearning how to walk after um a, a severe medical condition and that uh, the biggest uh, biggest challenge was nausea and vertigo and so you know, even getting out of bed was very challenging um had been very bedbound for a while and and over time, it's been just profound to bear witness to the dramatic change in her recovery. Um, and one thing that she had shared relatively recently in um, a class that she had taken with me that was focusing on these values um, or the winds of the body and the directionalities of the energy was that when we were working with the apanic vayu, the apana, which is this downward flowing energy and really allowing yourself to root downward and in a sense feel that connection to pelvis and legs and feet and the report afterwards was that the amount of vertigo and nausea had dramatically decreased in response to just that reorienting and the energetic focus
0: wow yes right. and, it, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you're somebody who has this span across the sort of the Western orthodoxy and where that's at in terms of the cutting edge but but equally from because isn't it so interesting with with yoga? Is you you find something in the sort of the Western knowledge
1: base, and you know all oh, the yogis
0: have known about this for thousands of years. It's
1: so true. In the, in, I, I teach something called applied polyvagal theory in yoga, which is basically looking at the vagus nerve and looking at a lot of science of our autonomic nervous system, and then. You know, there's all this new research of like, oh, we need to do this resonance frequency breathing, and it creates coherence, and it's this even inhale and this even exhale, and here's all the science behind it. And then you go back in the text, and you're like, yeah, that's of Riti They knew about this already. And the of Riti is the same amount of movement in relationship to the breath. It's a particular style of breathing that that the ancients knew about, that mm. and that they refer to the Vritti, the, the Vritti of this same being equal, vritti being movement, but it's not just the movement of the breath, but it's the movement of the mind. Mm. And that when we slow it all down, our minds become really calm. That's coherence. And the science yeah. is now proving it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, even, even the trauma work, you know, the, the, there's this this constant, as I understand, the, of samskara, right? The, 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 the scars from our past that, you know we work with in a yogic sense and so even you know something that feels very modern is turns out not to be that's right yeah 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 um we touched briefly on the, on the psychedelics. So th- this is um this is something I, It almost seems to be growing in in, in it, it, at the same rate uh mm. as the interest in embodiment is with the interest in psychedelics you know do you do you think they they're, they're useful do you think um they're, they're, they're dangerous. I mean, where do, where, do you, where do you sit in terms of the use of, of psychology? I think
1: they're useful. And I think just like everything that we're speaking about, especially in that conversation around catharsis, I think that, they, that we need to recognize that this is a very specific tool that re- requires a trauma-informed practitioner. Because people can go into very big states, it can open up all of those gateways and can lead people to feel very untethered or afraid. And yet, if we have a really good guide, and if we have someone that's willing to be present with us in states of awe or fear or anger or grief, and to, and when someone else is not afraid of those states then we feel really held and we feel really met and i'm speaking about this specifically in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy in the in the context of having someone that has trained to show up as a trustworthy guide mm. There's problematic aspects to psychedelics in the field right now. The problemast problematic aspects include this quality of the never enough, right? This idea of like I'm going after the next big aha, the next big experience, and that there isn't enough attention to the digestion of that and the process and the integration and the 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 recognition that sure you might have a big experience, but if it doesn't make you a better person, meh right like it's ultimately about how do you show up whether it was on your you know a yoga class or whether it was a psychedelic experience or you know going to a dance festival it's ultimately about how do you take that big experience and show up in the world with kindness and generosity and compassion and empathy and goodness and the the downside i think of of some of these really big therapies is that it, it fosters a certain form of narcissism in which it just becomes about me and more of me and more of me and it doesn't actually benefit the larger whole
0: wow yes yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense uh it reminds me of something john perkins said i, I don't know if you've met with him he's he wrote um economic hitman right and uh, which was you know uh, anyway He's also a trained shaman, and he, but he talked about having these, these experiences, and it might take him a couple of years, psychedelic experience, it might take him a couple of years to integrate. Right? And that, that makes sense from somebody who has a, you know, a, a long history and experience with using them. Um, I'm interested, though, do you think it can speed up? Because there's a little part of me, because I spent like 10 years doing therapy, and I'm like... Damn it. If I'd have just taken some mushrooms, could I have like done it in six months? Like, do you you think it can speed things up?
1: Faster is not always better. So let's just like hold that for a second. Can it speed things up? Sure. Can it lead to a really significant breakthrough? Absolutely. And is it, I love the example that you gave of having one big experience and taking several years to integrate it. Mm -hmm. That sounds like wisdom. And you know, but I will name you know. Going back to that story of being in my twenties and going to the body mind centering workshop, it um, you know it doesn't require first of all psychedelics because um, all of those neurochemicals live inside of us endogenously. So breath work can tap into that same process. Movement and yoga can tap into those same same elements. Um, your primal therapy can tap into a lot of that yeah. same experience. And, you know, but one big experience might take us 10 years to integrate into our overall sense of self. And I think in many ways, if we look at the fast food, you know, metaphor versus a nice, slow cooked meal, um, I'll share this. I know we'll need to end soon, but I'll share a, 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 a little metaphor here. My husband and I went out to dinner. Um, a week ago at this fine French restaurant, it was so delicious. And I ordered the, Mm -hmm. the French onion soup because you know, it it sounds so yummy. And on the menu, it said, it said that they cook this soup for three days before they serve it. And I have never had soup that good. I can do a promotional for the restaurant. It's in Denver, (laughs) but anyway, right. It was so worth the wait. And I just think if we can approach our own growth like that, you know, that big arc of maybe those 10 years of therapy or the 10 years that it took me to integrate that one workshop is just the right amount of time.
0: Yeah. 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 Which comes back to the, well, the ego. And, you know, that's to me, that's that's sort of spiritual. I don't know I suppose orientation perhaps to doing therapy right because we can it can become an ego well certainly has for me because has been maybe continues to be an egoic pursuit to like let's rid myself of all pain any traces of trauma all resolved right that that very kind of ego-led approach uh versus the yeah the sort of spiritual orientation which you know it'll take Take it's time and it's
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's different, yeah yeah, a different relationship, I suppose to it work
1: yes per- personally i'm i'm I am not drawn while I enjoy training others in the psychedelic work and how to do that in a trauma informed way for me, where my heart resides is in the subtleties, and um you know if i'm going to climb a mountain i'm less interested in the peak at the top as I am in enjoying every small step along the way and enjoying that branch and its shape or the color of that leaf or the overturning that rock. And so I'm, I'm, you know, that that's again, my bias and my value system. And, and in terms of the personal process, I love the subtleties and the slow, the slowness that allows me to actually savor each step of that personal transformational journey.
0: Yeah. Beautifully put. I tell you, I think what's really coming through with the Ariel is this, yeah. you, you, you are like an embodiment of Eastern West, right? You're, like mm-hmm. you're, um, I think, I think it's, uh, well, maybe we could say the masculine and the feminine, right? This, this, mm-hmm. this attention to the mechanics and then the, but, but, but a context of, uh, you know, a, a sort of the subtleties of our being, you know, in which we're doing this, this work. It,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I that appreciate makes sense. that. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I, but I think yeah, there's something to be said for your, your pursuit of the, of the, of the yogi, the yoga and the, and the psychotherapy and the psychology simultaneously.
1: Oh, beautiful. I, yeah. I appreciate that very much. And I've appreciated this conversation again in its own kind of organic nature and the the unfolding, you give enough space for, um, the, for, for that process to be alive in its sense, brilliant. Yeah. Okay,
0: well, thanks once again um, for people who are, this resonates with them. You know, where would you? What, you know, where would they? Where would you send them to? You know, to to learn more of your work.
1: Um, you'd start with my websites. I have the dr. Schwartz, um, dot com. I have a, another website that's called resilienceinformedtherapy.com. So you can learn a whole lot about my work and my center here in Colorado. I have uh, Facebook, uh, Dr. Ariel Schwartz, YouTube, Dr. Ariel Schwartz, uh, Instagram, Ariel Schwartz Boulder. Um, there you get to see a lot of my nature photos. And um, yeah, and it'll just be lovely to stay connected.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much. And we'll put all of those links into the description. Thanks. Once again, Ariel. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.